Now hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. Really wonderful to gather on the Lord's Day with you. As Paul said, today marks the third Sunday in the season of Advent, which is a season of longing and preparation for the birth of Jesus, who is the King of Kings. It's during Advent we relive ancient Israel's anticipation of the coming Messiah, but we also simultaneously long for him to come again with the new heavens and the new earth. Luke writes to Theophilus, which means lover of God, and he tells him that he is sending out the things that have been, as he terms it, accomplished among us. And so the word that he uses there, accomplished, is, is the word fulfill. So Luke is not recording and communicating these things as, as just a matter of historical fact, as, as if what was important to recall is just the career of Jesus. He's telling us of what has been fulfilled in them, through them, the church, by God, through his Son, and by his Spirit. And this really does mean, Sojourn, that our, that our faith that our salvation is not an abstract concept. We have a new king, and his kingdom is remaking the world. That's present tense language. The world is being remade by the kingdom of God. Gospel of Luke opens with this angelic annunciation, a miraculous conception, the conception of John to an elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. But because Zechariah failed to trust the Lord's promise, he was rendered mute, unable to speak throughout his wife's entire pregnancy. So Zechariah did, he failed to trust God's word, and as a result, he was unable to utter a word of his own. Then Luke goes on to describe an even more miraculous conception, the conception of Jesus to a young virgin named Mary. But unlike Zechariah, Mary trusted the Lord's promise, and rather than being made to wait in silence, she immediately sings a song of praise and thanksgiving. And I don't know if you've noticed this over the course of the last couple of weeks, but it's very clear that Mary is not the only one singing. As we read the opening chapter of Luke, we get a sense of this rapturous joy that's falling on everyone. 
Everyone seems to understand the broader implications of these two pregnancies. It even seems like it's not only these two women who are pregnant, but all creation. All creation is pregnant with hope and expectation because divine blessing is coming. Everyone is singing. Everyone is dancing. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, sings to Mary. Her unborn baby John, filled with the Holy Spirit, leaps for joy in the womb. Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with God's own son, sings a song of praise and thanksgiving. It's just rapturous joy. No one can keep their mouths shut. And today we see Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, join this blessed chorus to bless the God of creation and his own son, as we'll see next week, with a song. It's so wonderful to see a father singing, singing to his son. It's like, as a father, he glorifies his son, John, just like the father glorifies his son, Jesus. For a moment, though, let's put ourselves in Zachariah's place. Imagine being silent all day, every day, for nine months. He was unable to speak a word. He could write on a tablet, but that would have probably been very slow, very expensive. Blackboards and chalk were not in great supply. Also consider this in verse 62. This is the first time I saw this or noticed this. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. I'm not certain of this, but it's quite possible that Zechariah could have also been deaf during this time. They're not able to talk to him. They have to make signs to him. So what would it be like to not be able to speak and to not be able to hear for nine months? For the most part, Zechariah, to this point, has been alone with his thoughts. What would that have been like? Terrifying? Frustrating? Lonely? Many of us might consider the Lord's discipline of Zechariah to be cruel and unusual, but really, I think this is a blessing in disguise. Consider this. Zechariah is a priest. So this is a man who knows all of Scripture. He's memorized it. And he is forced into a posture of prayer and reflection. Could it be, could it be that God is saying to Zechariah, I'm going to close your mouth and I'm going to stop your ears so that you can take some time to remember all the barren women whose wombs have been opened? Do you remember Sarah? Zechariah, do you remember Hannah? Do you remember Rebecca? Do you remember Rachel? To silently sit before the Lord was precisely what Zechariah needed. Maybe he even thought this. He thought of another priest back in 1 Samuel who was blind and who didn't raise good sons. And he's thinking, I'm a mute deaf priest. Am I gonna raise a good son? Maybe. But to sit before the Lord in silence is what many of us need to do. I know that it's what I need to do. Being silent gives us the room and increased ability to remember what God has done. To remember 
not to fill the silence with all of our own thoughts and our own words, but to remember what his word has said, to remember what he says. And Zechariah went about this every day. His friends and coworkers probably thought that he had lost his mind. He could feel his unborn son dancing in the womb, but he couldn't speak a word about it to his wife. He was no doubt joyful, but this was probably agonizing. He probably spent so much time thinking about the encounter with the angel, running it back through his mind. What did he, and then he said this, and then I said that, I shouldn't have said that, I should have. Elizabeth had conceived as promised, so why have I been so faithless? What is God doing? What would I say right now if I could speak? What will I say when God gives my voice back to me? If you'll recall, Zechariah was rendered mute while ministering in the temple all alone, and the people outside were waiting for Zechariah to exit the temple and to speak the word of blessing over them. That's what that numbers blessing is. The priest would come out, and he would say, the Lord bless you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He couldn't speak that. He never got to speak that word of blessing. So in a sense, Zechariah has also been pregnant with this word. He's been carrying around a word of blessing since the moment his tongue was silenced. So when given the chance, what does he say? Let's read. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. The singing continues. The dancing continues. It's not just these main players. It's everyone. It's the people. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise her ch the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by his name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. So Elizabeth gives birth to a baby boy and she names him John as instructed by the angel who appeared to her husband. And in doing this, Elizabeth, what she's doing is something incredible. She is faithfully devoting her son to the Lord. She's entrusting her son. She's entrusting the very promise that she was given to the Lord. Despite years and years of longing for a child of her own, she entrusts John to his heavenly father. Now on one hand, on one hand, this is, this is exactly how all Christian parents ought to respond to the gift of a child. Every child in this room, every child in that room, every child in your lap, every child sitting next to you, my children, we, they are all, they all belong to God. Sojourn children in the room, if you can hear my voice, if you pay attention for a minute, you belong to God. You belong to him. We were talking with Edie the other night about, about Jesus being king, and she said, Jesus is the king, but we are his precious jewels. It's so true. They've been entrusted to us by a far more loving, a far more protective, and far more powerful heavenly parent. 
And we should take great comfort in that reality, comfort for the children who are with us and comfort for the children who are with the Lord. Christian parenting is parenting in light of God's sovereign parenthood. But there's also something else going on. Luke is drawing a parallel for us. Like, like Britt mentioned last week, the story of Elizabeth and John mirrors the ancient story of Hannah and Samuel. Follow me on this. Hannah was a barren woman, but the Lord gave her Samuel. And in response, Hannah devoted Samuel to the Lord, and Samuel grew up to be a priest and a prophet over Israel, and he prepared the way for the Lord's anointed king, David. Samuel actually anointed King David himself. Likewise, Elizabeth is a barren woman, but the Lord gave her John. And in response, Elizabeth devoted John to the Lord and John grew up to be a priest and prophet over Israel. He prepared the way for the Lord's anointed king, Jesus. And John actually anointed King Jesus himself. That's partly what's happening when John baptizes Jesus. He's anointing the king of kings. See, both Hannah and Elizabeth are bearing king makers. But it's not just Elizabeth naming the boy John here. After months of silence and waiting, Zechariah boldly affirms the name too, and in response, everyone marvels. Well, why, why would they marvel if they're just naming a baby? Well, presumably, Elizabeth had been trying to explain that John was the, give, the name given by the angel, and so Zechariah essentially says, it's not up to us. It's not up to me. He's already been named. His name is John which means Yahweh is gracious. His affirmation of the name John is a confirmation that something incredible is happening here. In addition, Zechariah immediately begins to speak again, which is the second clue that something amazing is happening. Wait, this, this boy's name is John out of nowhere, and now you begin to speak once you affirm that that's his name? When Zechariah opens his mouth to speak after a long period of silence, we're being told something. This is a sign. It's, it's like a small Pentecost. John is being, Zechariah is being given a new tongue. It's a sign that God is speaking again. Zechariah's tongue is loosed because a voice is born. The voice is John. The word is Jesus. The last great old covenant prophet has been born. The baby in Elizabeth's lap will be God's mouthpiece to the people of Israel. He will prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings. Let's read verses 65 and 66. And fear came on all their neighbors... It's in keeping with the theme. <laughs> and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid, up, laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So the news is spreading. The joy is spreading. The dancing is spreading. The singing is spreading. 
Make no mistake, every Israelite in the hill country of Judea would have understood the gravity of what the Lord was doing. They may not have known what he was doing, but they, they would have known that he was doing something. Why? Because he had opened a barren womb, the, the womb of a woman well beyond her childbearing years. And the scriptures were clear on this. This was a common theme. When the Lord opens a barren womb, divine blessing is on its way. New life is coming. So every Israelite in the hill country of Judea was was expecting something great. What is God doing? What is he doing? This is the answer. He's bringing deliverance. Deliverance. He's finally doing what he promised to do centuries ago. One evil empire after another had trampled Israel underfoot, and their only source of comfort and hope was an ancient promise that God would bring deliverance. So Zechariah's song springs not just from months of silent prayer or decades of infertility, it's not just that his song springs from his own story. Zachariah's song springs from, forth from centuries of eager anticipation. I mean, think about it. Zechariah is the priest. That means that he is representative of Israel. Maybe even in his infirmities, he can't speak, he can't hear. Israel has forgotten how to, how to speak the words of God. They've forgotten how to hear the words of God. And now here Zechariah is, representative of the people And they burst forth with this long wait. And we've been waiting for this for generations and generations as if all those generations are caught up and caught in Zechariah. God's people had long been waiting for this day. And I think that there's something very important for us here this morning. During their centuries of waiting, the people of Israel were called to trust promises from the past about the future, not knowing what it would look like or whether they would actually get to see it. So think about how many faithful generations passed without witnessing the fulfillment of those promises. I feel this too. But as, as, Christian, as Christian individualists, like us, it's really difficult to understand why God would allow so many faithful people to live their entire lives without getting what they most wanted. It seems, I think maybe to us in this room, it seems like just an unthinkable thing for that to be true. We we think that when we pray for something, God ought to do it, and he ought to do it quickly. I feel that, I know that, I know that with you. I know that feeling of if we ask God for something, God bringing it quickly, that proves that he hears us. If he brings it right away, it it means I prayed for the right thing, and he gave me the right thing. But Sojourn, that's, that's not really how he operates. Because getting anything quickly is not actually what builds our faith. 
doesn't build us as disciples. That's not what actually teaches us to trust him. God teaches us to trust him in the waiting, in the silence, in the in-between. Sojourn kids, children of Sojourn, would you give me your attention for just a second? Just a second. I want you to do something with your parents or with your parish. I want you to pray for something with them, with your parents or with someone in your parish. And then I want you to all agree with them. Let's wait and see what God does. Let's practice waiting. Let's practice asking him and let's practice waiting on him, okay? Let's do that. Just a small aside, but I think an important one. God does desire to bless us, Sojourn. Absolutely, he has proven that in Jesus. You ever doubt that, you look at Jesus. You remember him. You remember all the promises that the Lord has kept, all the places where he has been faithful. You remember he does give good gifts. He desires to meet us in our desires, no matter what they are. We desire a spouse, a child, a house, a job, the salvation of a friend, the end of chronic pain, the healing of an illness, freedom from anxiety. God is listening. He's always listening. According to the Bible, God hears us every time we talk to him, and eventually, no matter what, he sends deliverance. Every time. He doesn't give us stones when we ask for bread. It's a promise. He always gives good things to his children. Wait with me for a bit on that, on that thought. He either gives you what you ask, he gives us what we ask, or he gives something better. Sometimes we don't get what we think we wanted or what we asked for. Sometimes the gift is wrapped in ugly wrapping paper. I've received a lot of wonderful presents in ugly wrapping paper. And that's difficult. Just, can we admit it? It's difficult because it means that it can sometimes be difficult to distinguish between answered prayer and unanswered prayer. Maybe you've been praying for a good and godly thing, but all you're getting is suffering and frustration. Maybe you've been praying for relief, but things are just getting worse. Where's God? <laughs> Whatever happened to ask and it will be given? Will God allow his children to place their hope in a deliverance they would never get to see? Let's listen to Paul's words for a moment. The Apostle Paul. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
So what is God doing when deliverance tarries, when the waiting gets longer? We ask, what is God doing? Why is he waiting to give me whatever it is? Can I tell you that at minimum, he is producing valuable things in you, in us, character, endurance, and hope. At minimum, he is using you as a living witness to the sufferings of Christ. At minimum, he is making his power perfect in your weakness. At minimum, he is using your joy and suffering to prove that the gospel is real and that the gospel is more than enough, that Jesus is more than enough. This is not God giving you stones instead of bread. He doesn't do that. He either gives you what you ask for or he gives you something better. And if that seems backwards or upside down, then I think, like Brent mentioned last week, we're beginning to understand how the kingdom of God operates. Another thought, a final thought, maybe. I know that we often say that from Malachi to Matthew, God was silent, but it's not, it's not entirely accurate. From the moment he spoke the universe into existence, God has never been silent. God, God's people have never been without a word from the Lord. To the contrary, we have the most valuable resource imaginable, his word, the Bible, the scriptures. We have a word from the one who knows the past, the present, the future, and the words that we speak before we speak them. Consider the value of this incredible resource in a lost and fallen and wandering humanity. Sojourn, when you believe that the Lord isn't speaking, I want you to open the Bible. I want us to open the Bible and read the Bible and know the Bible and trust the Bible. If you trust God's word, then strictly speaking, if we trust his word, he is never silent. Never. Don't believe that he's holding out on you. Learn from Zechariah. When you suffer loss, when you're waiting, when you're in doubt, when you're frustrated, when you feel alone, trust that God is meeting you right there in that desire and growing you in ways that you couldn't even imagine. The wrapping may be ugly, but God is helping you to trust his promises. In the midst of the pain and suffering, God is teaching you the lyrics to a song of deliverance that maybe and surely it will break forth in song. And you may not get to sing that song this side of eternity, but he will still be, he still is your good and loving father. So what is Luke asking of his readers? Luke wants us to think long and hard about the identity of John, just like the people in verse 66. What then will this child be? Luke wants us to know the identity of John in order to reveal the identity of Jesus. See, in this, we're just being pulled into the story. 
Luke wants us to ask the same questions and come to the same conclusions as Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and all the people throughout the hill country of Judea. Will you believe the word of God? Will you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Kings? Will you accept his deliverance, his salvation, his mercy, his forgiveness? Will you trust him with your future? Will you step out of the darkness into the light? Will you pray and wait with confidence? Will you give him your allegiance? That's what Luke is asking of you and me. And by his spirit, we can believe, we will believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word, Lord, that teaches us, Lord, to trust you at your word, to remember your word, to speak your word, to read your word, to store up your word inside of us, Lord, to marvel at your word. Lord, help, help this week even more prepare us for the Christmas day that is coming. As we wait, as we long, as we hope, Lord, for your second coming, we wait too. We groan too, just like creation groans. We groan as well, and yet we don't groan without hope. Would you use, Lord, our, our patient waiting Lord, to build in us character that says, I know my Redeemer lives. I know that my God loves me. I know that he's not holding out on me. Would you make us such a patient, God, strong, brave, courageous people. Lord, we look to you as a servant who looks to the hand of his master, we look to you and we wait. And we are so glad or to, to be at this time, to know that the king has already come and that he will come again. Lord, help us. Help us, we pray. We ask all of it in the name of Christ. Amen.